you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. And the title of this chapter as we continue in the book of Revelation is Comfort or Hope in the Midst of a Storm. All of us have dealt with storms in our life. We face difficulties and sometimes we wonder why God is allowing those difficulties in our life. And one of the things that we desperately need more than anything else when we are being battered by the storms of life is comfort and hope. We want to hear a word from God, that God is in control, that he is sovereignly working out his purposes. And the hardest thing for all of us is when God is silent. I was reading a story about a woman who basically was told that she was going to give birth to a Down syndrome baby. And of course, she was struggling with this whole process. And her pastor did everything he could to try to comfort her. And the next day, he wrote her a postcard telling her that God was in control of this particular birth. Well, that postcard never made it to her house. It actually went to another house a mile away. And the woman who got the postcard decided to deliver it to this one woman who was going to have the Down syndrome baby. And when she knocked on the door, this woman began to share with her how she too had had a Down syndrome baby, and she was a Christian, and she told this lady what God had taught her in the midst of her difficulty. You see, God often uses other people. He uses circumstances. He uses his word. There's a multitude of things that God uses in order to bring us hope and comfort in the midst of the storm. Well, that's exactly what we see here in chapter 10. As you know, we are dealing with the tribulation period. It is a seven-year period of devastation. And during this time, so far we have seen that Christians are going to be battered by the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And what chapter 10 is, is a respite. It is a breather. It is a parenthesis to give the Christians during the tribulation hope and comfort in the midst of their difficulty. It's basically God telling them that the end is almost near. Look, if you will, at this diagram. It'll help you understand what we've looked at thus far. We've looked at the seven seal judgments. And of course, we looked at the Antichrist and the seal judgments. There's going to be war, famine, death, martyrs, earthquakes. That's all in chapter 6. And then before the seventh seal was broken, there was a parenthesis here. And this parenthesis was a respite. It was a breather. Then we get to... The trumpet judgments, and John looked at the first six uh, trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9, and we looked at how the trees and the earth are going to be burned up, the oceans are going to turn to blood, natural water is going to turn to blood, the sun is going to be darkened, demons are going to be released, and an army of 200 million are going to be released as well. And so you have that in the first six trumpets. But before the seventh trumpet is blown, you have in chapter 10 another parenthesis, Another respite. It's basically comic relief. All of us have seen a movie before where there's such intensity in the movie or there's such drama or there's such grief that what happens is the producer of the movie knows that people's emotions are basically at a fever pitch and what they do is they change the scene in order to bring comic relief. And that's exactly what God is doing here in this parenthesis. He's letting them know that before the seventh trumpet is blown, and by the way, when this seventh trumpet is blown, 
it's going to release the seven bowl judgments. And those bowl judgments happen in rapid fire succession. When the seventh trumpet is blown, the end is almost near. And so what God is doing through an angel here in chapter 10 is he's letting the tribulation believers know, hang in there, there is hope, there is encouragement, the end is almost near. Because when the seventh trumpet is blown, that's going to release the seven bowl judgments, and then the end is going to come when Jesus Christ returns. For example, notice what he says in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. It says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, that is the seventh trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he announced to his servant the prophets. In other words, when that seventh trumpet is blown, what's going to happen is the seven bowl judgments are going to be released and then the end is going to come. Or look at chapter 11, verse 15. We get another clue of this. He says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, when that seventh trumpet is blown, it's going to signal the return of Christ, and the kingdom is going to come. And so what you have in chapter 10 here is an interlude. You have a respite. You have a parenthesis before the seventh trumpet is blown, and the purpose of chapter 10 is to give the tribulation believers hope in the midst of the storm. In other words, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and isn't that what we need when we go through difficulty? You may not be in the tribulation period, obviously, because we're going to be raptured out, but when you and I go through difficulty, when we go through struggles in our marriage with our children... Maybe it's a physical issue that you're dealing with. The one thing that we need more than anything else is comfort and hope. God may not remove the difficulty, but what God does is he promises us that he will give us hope, he will give us comfort, and he will sustain us in the midst of it. Now, what God's going to do here in chapter 10 is he's going to give John a vision, as it were, of this massive angel. It's sort of an angel of hope. We could say that John was touched by an angel. So first of all, let's look at the angel. Notice, if you will, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven. Now, if you remember in chapter 9, you had demons coming up from the abyss. Here, you have another strong angel coming down from heaven. And the question is this, who is this angel? Theologians debate this. And some theologians would say that this is actually Jesus Christ. Other theologians say, no, it is a strong, powerful angel. My particular conviction is it's not Jesus Christ, because in the book of Revelation, Jesus is never presented as an angel. But the key for me as to why it is not Jesus Christ is because of the Greek word, another. There's two Greek words that are used. It is the word alas and the word heteros. The word alos means one of the same kind. The word heteros means one of a different kind. We get the term heterosexual from that. It means someone different. Well, the Greek word used here is not heteros, another angel of a different kind, but the word here is another angel of the same kind. 
what do you mean another angel of the same kind? Well, we looked at the seven angels that were blowing their trumpets, and they were clearly angels. And so the word here in the Greek, another, means one of the same kind. So clearly, this is an angel. And notice it says here, it is a strong angel. What this shows us, if you study angelology in the Bible, is that there are different degrees or gradations or hierarchies when it comes to angels. For example, here is a sampling up on the screen. Next slide. You will notice the different categories of angels that are mentioned in the Bible. I'm sure this is not exhaustive, but you have cherubim, you have seraphim, you have thrones, you have dominions, you have powers, and you have principalities. It's just like the military. And the fact that verse 1 says, I saw another strong angel, the word strong implies that there are different categories of angels. You could read about this in Daniel chapter 10 and Ephesians chapter 6. And what's interesting about angels is they all have different assignments. Angels are not given the same assignments. And by the way, Satan also has his demonic host organized in a very structured way, just like the military, and just like angels have their assignments, we know demons as well have their assignments. For example, you'll notice up on the screen the different assignments that angels have. There are worshiping angels. They spend most of their time worshiping God. You have announcing angels, Gabriel. You have delivering angels. You have warfare angels. Michael is seen as that in the book of Daniel. You have guardian angels. You have element angels. What does that mean? Angels that are over the elements of this earth, fire, water, rain. And then you have judging angels. And so angels are in different categories. And John says, I saw this strong angel coming down from heaven. And they all have different assignments. I remember when I was in seminary, for some reason, I wanted to meet an angel. And I was praying every day, God, let me encounter an angel. Some of us may have encountered an angel and not realized it because, as you know, angels can take on human form. And I prayed all the time. And I remember I'd take a walk at night thinking, all right, God, now's the time. Let me see one. Well, guess what? God never answered my prayer. Because God's not in it for amusement. God sends his angels to do things for his particular purposes. And see, angels in the Bible are there to assist us. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible says that during this current administration, we are a little lower than the angels, according to Hebrews chapter 2. But you know what the good news is? When we get to glory, we are going to be higher than the angels. Angels are actually going to serve us. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we're going to judge angels. We're going to rule over them. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to order them around and say, hey, I need another iced tea, Michael. Come on and give me one. That's not what that means, but it's simply saying this, that we are a little bit lower than the angels in this administration, but when we get to heaven, angels are actually going to serve us. And so God here sends this angel to bring comfort and hope to the people during the seven-year tribulation. So we've seen the angel. Let's secondly look at the angel's appearance, the angel's appearance. Notice, if you will, verses 1 and 2, and there's a lot of imagery here, and you'll notice the picture up on the screen. It'll help you define what this angel looks like. He says, I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven, and notice he is clothed with a cloud. 
Now, cloud in the Bible is a symbolism of God's presence or God's judgment. In Matthew 24, Jesus is seen as coming on the clouds of heaven in judgment. And so this angel is garbed in a cloud, which represents God's presence, God's judgment. And notice it says also, and the rainbow was on his head. We saw a rainbow in chapter 4. It was an emerald rainbow. This is a multicolored rainbow. And rainbow in the Bible, going back to Genesis, represents God's covenant faithfulness. And it says his face was like the sun, meaning that he was in the presence of God when he came down from heaven. Therefore, he's reflecting God's glory. He's reflecting his purity. And it says his feet are like pillars of fire, and that would include his legs as well as his feet. And here, pillars of fire or pillars of bronze represents judgment. Now, you got to understand, angels don't always look this way. This obviously is symbolism. When you read in the Bible, particularly in the resurrection accounts, you will notice that angels appear as a GE light bulb. They are clothed in white. And sometimes angels take on human form. Now, I've never met an angel personally, although some of you may have and not have realized it. I was reading a story about a woman who would do missions trips, crusades in Korea. And one particular crusade that she went on, it went for a long time, and they ended the crusade late. And they decided to drive all the missionaries home. And her home was a little bit further where she was staying. And so she said, look, just drop me off at this major intersection. It was busy during the day. There was a lot of taxi cabs. And she thought, I'll just get a taxi cab. Well, when she got dropped off, she realized that it was kind of, no one was around. It was kind of eerie. And all of a sudden, while she was standing there alone, this is her testimony, she said, these five men came out of a bar. And as she looked at them, they noticed her, and they were drunk. And one of them became very aggressive. He began to move towards her. And he reached out his arms towards her, and he said, come to me. And of course, there was no taxi cabs around. They were plentiful during the day, but there was none that night. And as he came towards her, she panicked. She didn't want to go in one direction because that was a dark alley, and she didn't want to obviously go in the direction of where this particular man was coming at her. And so she froze. And then she said, all of a sudden, she said, this Korean man appeared out of nowhere, and she said, what struck me was his size. He looked like a human. But she said, Korean men are normally short. This particular Korean man was very, very strong, and he was very built. And he came out of nowhere, and she said, he stood between me and the assailant in front of me. And when the assailant looked at this man, he didn't say anything. He just looked at him. The assailant backed down. And the woman said she looked at him long enough to make sure that he left. And when she turned around to thank the Korean man, he was gone. She looked down the alley, couldn't find him. She was absolutely convinced that God had sent an angel in human form in order to protect her. And so angels can appear in bright light. They can appear in human form. Here, we see the imagery that this angel is cloaked in. You say, well, what's the point of this particular imagery? It is to show us that God is not only a God of wrath and judgment, but he's a God of mercy. 
The fact that the angel is clothed in a cloud shows that God is coming in judgment, which he's been doing during the tribulation as he's poured out the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments. God is a God of wrath, but here's the comforting word. He's also a God of covenant faithfulness. That's the point of the rainbow. Even though God is going to stamp out sin, that's the pillars of legs that are basically bronze. That represents God's judgment. God is also a God of mercy, and he's a God of covenant faithfulness, and here's the comfort. He's letting his people know that he will be faithful to them during the tribulation. Even though many of them may get martyred, God will be faithful to them. And you see, we have to balance that. Whenever we talk about God, we have to balance his wrath and also his mercy. As you know, I like to talk to people online, and I like to share my faith that way, and I was on Facebook this week, and one particular lady who claims to be a Christian, she put this post up, and she said, you can be a Christian if you believe the following, and she gave a list. Now, the list that she gave, I didn't necessarily agree with, but the one thing she said that bothered me was she said, you could be a Christian and not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. You can believe that the Bible has error. So her and I began to dialogue about the reliability of Scripture, and I presented to her reasons why I believe the Bible is reliable. And as we began to have this discussion, the one thing that concerned me was she basically said, you have a view of God that he is a God of wrath. She says, I don't have that view. She said, God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is not a God of wrath. And there is no basic hell that is coming in the future. And I tried to explain to her that God is both merciful and loving. That's the rainbow here that we see the angel cloaked in. But he's also a God of wrath. That's the clouds. And that's, all, that's also the feet to stamp out sin. And you've got to have that balance. So we've seen the angel. We've seen the angel's appearance. Thirdly, I would have you note the angel's actions the angel's actions. Now, the angel here is going to commit to four actions to bring comfort to the people during the tribulation period. Let's look at the first action that the angel commits. First of all, this angel displays a little scroll in his hand. He displays a little scroll in his hand. Look at verse 2, if you will. And he had in his hand a little scroll which was open. Now, the question is, what is this little scroll? This little scroll, obviously, is the scroll that is mentioned in chapter 6 when the seal judgments were broken. It is the title deed to the earth. Now, remember, God owns the earth. Satan is the usurper. And so here, this little scroll is the title deed to the earth, and it is open, which is basically saying that God is in the process of taking back the earth from the usurper. You say, well, why is it a small scroll? Well, because in the vision, as we're going to see later on in the chapter, John has to eat the scroll. So this scroll in chapter 10 is not different than the scroll in chapter 6. Some commentators want to say that there are two different scrolls. It's not. It is the title deed to the earth. And you see, Satan is the usurper. He is the ruler of this world, 1 John 5 says. And you know what God is going to do? He's going to take back the earth from Satan. You got to understand, the devil is God's devil. He has Satan on a leash, and he's allowed him to be the ruler of this world for a short period of time. And you see, Satan thinks that he is the landlord, but in fact, he is a tenant. And you know what God is doing right now? He is evicting Satan from this earth. 
And you and I know that there are bad tenants, right? Satan is a bad tenant. In fact, I was reading about this tenant that was in their apartment and they didn't pay their rent for months and months and months. And the landlord had to go through all the stuff of trying to get them out. And those of you who have rented houses before understand the difficult process of that. Well, this landlord finally was able to get the tenant out. And when he went into his apartment, he noticed there was a foul smell. And he couldn't figure it out. So he had people come in and clean the carpets, did all kinds of stuff, but the smell still remained. And so finally, he discovered that this particular tenant was a bad tenant, had tore open a part of the wall and put in raw meat within the wall and covered it up. And the stench began to fester. And you know what? Satan is a bad tenant. God is the landlord. He owns this universe. And you know what he's doing with the little scroll in the hand? He's basically giving notice to Satan saying, I'm evicting you from this earth. You are no longer going to be the usurper and I'm going to take the earth back from you. And so that's the first action of this angel. He displays a little scroll in his hand. The second action is he places his feet on the land and on the sea. Notice if you will, verse two, it says he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. It's kind of like Colossus of Rhodes. Colossus of Rhodes is basically a statue dedicated to the Greek god Helios. It happened back in like 200 BC. And you know what the symbolism here is of basically this angel putting his foot on the land and on the sea? It's basically God saying that I am putting my foot down because I am the ruler of the land and of the sea. It's God communicating ownership. By putting one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, God is saying, I am the one who owns the earth, I am the one who owns the seas, and I have absolute authority. We understand this today when we talk about putting our foot down. I remember when I was in high school, I worked with a guy from the football team that I played with, my dad would hire me every summer and we would work in the warehouses of Miami. It was very, very hot. And this particular gentleman, his name was Brent McSwain. He would come with me and he would work during the summer. And I remember he told me one time, he said, you know what? My dad has no authority over me. He said, my dad won't put his foot down. He said, my dad told me one time, son, you're not going out tonight. He was going to ground him. And you know what he did? He looked at his dad and he said, dad, it's going to take a bat for you to keep me in this house. I said, well, what happened? He said, I went out. My dad didn't do anything. And you know what he was saying there? My dad could not put his foot down. See, putting your foot down represents authority. And so God is saying to the tribulation believers here with this angel holding the scroll in his hand and putting his foot down on the land and the sea, I am the owner of the earth. I am the owner of the seas. And basically... I'm going to take it back from Satan, and so hang in there. Comfort is coming. There's a third action that the angel engages in, and that is he roars like a lion. Notice, if you will, verse 3. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Now, when a lion roars, you typically know that he is the king of what? The jungle. In fact, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I was going to high school with one of my friends, and he told me one of his neighbors actually had a lion in his house. 
He said, if you go into his house, I don't know how the guy pulled this off because it is illegal to have any type of wild animal like that in your house. You can actually get arrested. He said that he got this animal, this lion, I don't know from where, when it was small, and he raised it. And he said, when you walk into his house, you can hear the lion roar at times. And he said the lion would jump across the room and tackle his owner, and they would wrestle on the floor. I thought, that is absolutely bizarre. Now, you've been to the zoo before, and you've heard a lion roar. Basically, lions roar because what they're saying is, I own everything. I am the king of the jungle. In fact, one person said this, quote, male lions will use their roar to scare off intruders and warn the pride of potential danger. It's also a show of power among other males. Lions' roars can be heard for up to five miles away, end quote. Why is this angel roaring? Again, it is to show that God is Mufasa. God is the king of the jungle. He is the one that owns everything, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords. You see what God is saying to the tribulation believers here? During this parenthesis, he's bringing comfort through the acts of this angel. The first act was what? Holding the scroll in his hand. I own the title deed to the earth. The second act was the angel putting his feet on the land and on the earth. That represents God owning everything. He's going to take back the earth from the usurper. And then he roars like a lion to say that he is the Mufasa, that he is the king of the jungle, and that he is in sovereign control. Well, after the angel roars, another voice interrupts. Look at verse 3. It says, and when he, that is the angel, had cried out, when the angel had roared, look what happens in verse 3. The seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, what are these seven peals of thunder? Well, we really don't know. The number seven is a number of completeness. It's probably God, because if you read the Old Testament, God is seen as thundering from heaven. His thundering voice is mentioned in the Old Testament. And so when this angel gives out a loud roar, all of a sudden, the roar is interrupted by the seven peals of thunder that utter their voices. It could be an angel. We don't know for sure. It's probably God. And then notice what happens in verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. Remember, John was commanded of the book of Revelation to write down what he saw, what he heard. And when he hears his seven peals of thunder, he's going to write it down, and it was going to be included in the book of Revelation. And then he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, again, probably God, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. John, I've instructed you to write down everything else, but when it comes to this, I don't want you to write it down. Now, you ask the question, well, what was it? I don't know. We don't know what it was, but I can tell you this, it probably was very alarming. It probably was something that was so traumatic, God did not want it recorded in the book of Revelation. God says, seal it up, don't record it. Why? Because it probably was something very, very devastating. Now, During the tribulation, it's going to unfold what John heard during this time. The other night, I was watching an NFL game, and I was watching the Browns play the Ravens. It was a great game. I typically don't stay up late and watch the game, but this one intrigued me. And I noticed that the Browns got in a huddle, and all the players were around him, and he gave the play. 
And you know what? I had no idea what the play was when they were huddled up. The few people in the stadium had no idea what the play was. You know when I discovered what the play was? When the ball was snapped. I knew what happened in secret in the huddle was eventually manifest when the play played itself out. And that's exactly what God is saying here. It is a secret you're not going to know until they break out of the huddle and the play is manifest. And by the way, this shows us that there are some things in the Bible that God does not intend us to know. There are some things in the Bible that God has chosen not to reveal to us. Deuteronomy 32, 32 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, you and I don't have all the information when it comes to prophecy. There's a lot of prophetic pundits today that want to tell us all that's going on, and unfortunately, they try to compare the newspaper with the Bible, and there's some of that that's good. We want to know the signs of the times, but here's the problem. Too many prophecy pundits today read into so much stuff and they come up with so much sensationalism and the Bible is silent on those issues. We just don't know. God told Daniel the same thing in Daniel chapter 11 or 12. He says, I want you to seal up the words of this prophecy. There are some things that we are not going to know. And you know what? During the tribulation period, those people will find out what's going to go on. And so we see the seven thunders here. And so, as we've looked at the angel's actions, what have we seen? First of all, the angel displays the little scroll in his hand. Secondly, the angel places his feet on the land and the sea. Thirdly, the angel roars like a lion. Here's a fourth action that the angel commits. He swears an oath to God. Notice, if you will, verses 5 through 7. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Now, that's a swearing mode. You're going to take an oath, you're going to swear an oath. And in verse 6, and, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, that is this angel when he swears to God, you can swear by nobody greater than God who created the heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. By the way, this shows us that God is the creator. Evolution is not taught in the Bible. Something does not come from nothing. God is the creator of all things. And notice what it says here, as he swears to God in heaven, here's what he swears, that there will be no longer any delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when the seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he announced to his servant, the prophets. You know what this angel is doing? He's raising his right hand to God, and he's swearing that when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, the end is going to come. Why? Because as soon as that seventh trumpet is blown, that activates the seven bowl judgments, and the bowl judgments happen probably within months at the end of the tribulation. It happens in rapid-fire succession. And so this angel is swearing to God, basically, that the end is going to come, and it says the mystery of God is going to be revealed. What does that mean? It simply means that all the prophecies in the Old Testament and the New are about to be fulfilled. Or how about this? The mystery of why God has allowed sin to run its course as long as he has. We all ask the question, God, why do you allow certain things to happen? Why did you allow that explosion in Tennessee over Christmas? 
God, why do you allow Hitler to do what he did? God, why do you allow suffering in the lives of your people? Why do Christians suffer martyrs' deaths? You see, God is going to eventually reveal his purpose and his plan. The mystery of God will be over at that point. And so we see where this angel swears. Now, this raises a question. Are we allowed to swear as well? Oaths. You've been in a court of law. You've seen it. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Is it wrong for Christians to swear oaths? The Bible says no, not necessarily. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God told Israel to swear oaths in his name. Here's what the Bible condemns. The Bible condemns swearing oaths on a regular basis in order to support the truthfulness of what you're saying. If you're swearing all the time oaths in order to buttress what you're saying... That's wrong because James 5 says, let your yes be yes and your what? Your no be no. In other words, the normal course of life is to let your yes be yes and your no be no. May your word be your word. But there are times where we may swear an oath in order to show the truthfulness of what we are trying to say. And that's exactly what this angel is doing. He's basically saying, I'm swearing by God that the end is about to come. And you know what this is doing? It's bringing comfort to the tribulation believers. And so we've seen the angel, the angel's appearance, the angel's actions. Let's fourth and finally look at the angel's assignment. The angel was to give John a little scroll and tell him to eat it. Notice, if you will, verses 8 through 10. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, that's God, saying, go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, verse 9, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So in verse 10, John says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. See, the angel gives this scroll to John, and John is to eat it. It's a reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where Ezekiel did the same thing. And What this symbolizes is that John was going to internalize the message that was given to him. Now, when he ate it initially, it tastes like a cannoli. Man, it was sweet. In fact, my wife put in my Christmas stocking this croissant that is cream-filled. I haven't eaten it yet. I'm waiting for a special day to enjoy that thing. And you know what? John ate it, and man, it was like a cannoli. It was sweet, but it also was like Sour Patch Kids. It was also bitter. It soured his stomach. I thought about my granddaughter. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. We, we took her to um, the place where you get those snowballs, and she was crying. We hadn't even given her a bite of the the icy there, and she was crying. And as soon as we put the spoon in her mouth, here's what happened. (laughs) Silenced her. You see, we understand sugar, it tastes good, but have you ever eaten so much sugar, it makes your stomach what? 
sour, bitter. And so we could say this, we are sweet and sour Christians. You say, what's the point and what's the symbolism here? You see, the angel's assignment was to give to John the scroll. John took it and he ate it. And here's the point of the symbolism. All that's going on during the tribulation period, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, on the one hand to the Christian, it is sweet. Why? Because God's justice is finally going to be played out. All of the wrongs that have been done against Christians are going to be made right. All of the evil people that have mistreated God's people throughout millennia is finally going to be recompensed. We're going to see the wrath of God fall. On the one hand, that is sweet. On the other hand, it's what? It's bitter. Why? Because people are going to go to hell. People are going to be separated from God. And listen, as a Christian, you got to be a sweet and sour Christian. Why? Because if you're all sweet, God, get them. And you have no sense of bitterness, you have no compassion. And he said, John, I want you to internalize this, take the scroll. It's going to be sweet, but it's also going to be bitter. And you know what? That's how we have to view non-believers. We have to look at them with a sense of compassion, a sense of love, a sense of mercy. We don't delight in the death of the wicked because God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But you know what? There's a sense of sweetness. Why? Because I'm ready for Jesus Christ to come back. How about you? I'm ready for God to consummate all things. I'm ready for God to silence the scoffers and those who try to silence Christians. And so it's a bittersweet thing that we all have to deal with in our life. And that's what John here is instructed to do is to eat the scroll. And so we've seen the angel. We've seen the angel's appearance. We've seen the angel's actions. And we've seen the angel's assignment. Give John the scroll and have him eat it. Well, he finally gives John one last word in verse 11 as he closes this chapter. He says, then I was told, that is John, you must prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You know what he's saying? John, the message may be bitter. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, it may be bitter, but John, I want you to keep writing, and I want you to keep preaching, and I want you to keep warning. Why? Because God has given us the great commission. And listen, you know what our mission is, people? It is to warn. It is to also invite people to come into the love of God and be forgiven. But if people are rejecting it, you know what? We have to warn people. Yesterday, and I do want to thank you for the homeless outreach, you guys brought so much stuff. And I want to thank you for that. Yesterday, we went downtown Columbia. We ministered to the homeless. There was about 80 maybe a hundred. We saw three professions of faith. And you know what we did as we gave them clothes and food? A number of the people, we had about 15 volunteers. We would pull the people aside and we would share the gospel with them. We'd pray with them. And you know what we'd do? We'd say, you know what? God offers you hope. He offers you forgiveness for violating his law. And listen, it's your choice. Either forgiveness or wrath, which one do you want? And that's ultimately what we preach to people, forgiveness or wrath. Which one do you want? I was online this morning on an article, 
and I presented the gospel. Some wrestler died this morning or last night, some famous wrestler. I don't know who he was, but I put on my particular wall, I said, condolences to the family. I said, as a reminder that death is going to come knocking on all of our doors one day, and what we do with Jesus Christ will determine where we spend eternity. And then I quote Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you know what? I do that with a lot of different posts, and I get all kinds of reactions. But you know what? I warn people. I offer them hope. I get scoffers, and I say, hey, look, it's your decision." If you want to reject Jesus Christ, and I give evidence, and you know what? God has called you to do that. Now, I don't know if you're going through a difficulty this morning, but God offers you comfort. God's not always going to remove the trial. He's not always going to remove the difficulty. I wish he would. There are times where God in his wisdom allows us to go through the deep waters of affliction. Just like these tribulation believers are going to be going through difficulty, And in the midst of the trumpet, the bowl, and the seal judgments, God gives them comfort in chapter 10. It's a parenthesis. It allows them to catch their breath. Because when you're being hammered by all these judgments, it's like, God, I can't handle this. And God says, all right, let me give you a little respite here and let you know that the end is coming. When that seventh angel blows his trumpet, that's going to release the seven bowl judgments. They're going to happen probably towards the last several months of the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back. And he's saying, hang in there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And if you're going through something this morning, I want to tell you, compared to eternity, the light is at the end of the tunnel. Stay on your face before God. Cry out to God and say, God, I need comfort right now. 2 Corinthians 1 says he is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we will be comfort carriers, that we would comfort others. And so ask God for comfort if you're struggling right now. If you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom. God is a God of mercy. Now, don't just pray one time and say, well, God didn't answer. Listen, seek God. God delays the answer. You know why? Because he wants you to seek him. He's not just content with you asking and him giving you the answer, microwave Christianity. God is into crockpot Christianity. God wants us to seek him. And you know what? We often don't want to do that, but that's exactly what God wants us to do.